0: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network. And I don't know about you, but I have a long list of books that I think I really should read or that I want to read. It was in this connection that I was particularly glad to learn about Blinkist. What Blinkist does is it takes thousands of best-selling nonfiction books and it distills them down to their most important elements so that you can read or listen to them in under 15 minutes and you can do it on your phone or your portable device. I listen to Blinkist while I'm working at my computer, doing the kind of thing that really doesn't involve my brain. The Blinkist Library is massive. It has 2,500 titles, and they're always adding new ones. There are a lot of classics, you know. for example, how to win friends and influence people. And there are also a lot of Amazon bestsellers on it. For example, there's a book called The Subtle Art of Not Giving. I, I can't say this on the air, but it's a word that starts with F. And then there are a lot of history books, that I think that you, as listeners to new books in history, would be very interested in. For example, there's David Christian's, I'm a big David Christian fan, origin story, a big history of everything. Daniel Ellsberg, you know who Daniel Ellsberg is. He wrote a book called The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner, which is fascinating. I listened to that on Blinkist. And then there are a lot of biographies. I really like listening to biographies on Blinkist. Alexander the Great by Philip Freeman. Genghis Khan by Jack Weatherford. Leonardo da Vinci by Walter Isaacson. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for the NBN audience. If you go to Blinkist.com slash books, you can start a free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash books to start a free seven-day trial. You can cancel any time. Blinkist.com slash books, And they will sign you up, and you can Find out whether this is something that you would enjoy. I know that I enjoy it, and I highly recommend it to you. I hope you enjoy the following interview.
1: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zeb Larson, and we're here today with Dr. Nick Grant, a lecturer at the University of East Anglia and author of Winning Our Freedoms Together. African Americans and Apartheid 1945-1960. to 1960. Dr. Grant looks at the transnational connections forged between African Americans and Black South Africans from a variety of different perspectives, including international leftism, gender, culture, and anti-communism to show linkages between these liberation struggles. Dr. Grant, welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, Tell us a little bit about where you went to school and what led you to this project.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Um, Yeah, so I uh, went and did my uh, dissertation at the University of Leeds in the UK um, under the supervision of Kate Dossett and Shane Doyle, Uh, so one Americanist and one Africanist, which kind of fitted the project really well. Um, And what really brought me to it was when I was doing uh, my master's dissertation, I was focusing in on the 1945 Pan-African Congress in Manchester and Leeds, just over the the Pennines from Manchester. So I was really intrigued about that as an anti-colonial gathering. Um, and I guess when I was thinking about graduate school and I was thinking about doing a PhD, I wanted to extend that narrative um, and to look at, you know, what was really happening in 1945 to 60 in terms of Pan-African struggles, Black international struggles and, you um, how Africans really took the lead on that and how African Americans responded to it. So that was, that was where it was coming from.
1: What did the research process look like for, for this book?
2: Yeah. Um, it was, it was fairly difficult. Um, so I, I was really influenced by, um, kind of landmark studies like Penny Von Eschen's Race Against Empire, uh, Thomas Borsum's work, James Merriweather, etc. Um, so I was really kind of, drawn to their research methodologies in a way um but i also felt that and that's not this is not to kind of um criticize that scholarship at all but i was really thinking about trying to bring in more african voices Um, so i knew that i wanted the research to um have a, a strong archival component in south africa um, so that was something that I knew from the beginning. And the, it was difficult. I say it was difficult because trying to navigate that. So I very much come from a, a background as an Americanist. Um, I hadn't really done a great deal of archival research in the United States before I started my PhD. Um, but the South African literature, the South African um, archives were really new to me. Um, and so I think one of the main challenges was was trying to grapple with the South African archives. Uh, there would be things, if I could reflect uh, and do things differently that I would have done differently, which might have um, produced a slightly different book and maybe would have um, added some uh, depth to some of that research. But um, navigating the archives in South Africa was something that I wanted to to bring into the conversation and as a way of not decentering African Americans from these narratives of black internationalism and the anti apartheid movement, but just see how that was a two way conversation. So that was really driving my research.
1: So, where were you looking in South Africa out of curiosity?
2: Yeah. Um, so, I. I think the stuff that I found that was maybe most of, uh, original and useful um, to my research in terms of uh, setting up the relationship between um, the US government and the apartheid state was at the National Archives in Pretoria, which was uh, a, a fairly difficult to navigate as well. I got a really good tip off by uh, uh, from Bob Edgar um, at Howard University um, for certain records and, and subseries to try and try and dig out. But the, those archives on, organizing a in A particularly clear way. So it took me a little bit of time to kind of navigate that and to go through it. So I found some really interesting material in Pretoria, particularly on how South African policymakers and how the apartheid government viewed the United States, how they viewed the ongoing struggle for civil rights in the United States and were concerned about it. But also, and I think crucially, how they were interested in learning from the mechanisms and the language of anti-communism and the Second Red Scare in ways that they could use to suppress um, dissent from black South Africans and uh, other groups in the Congress Alliance as well. Um, the, I kind of bolstered that with research, maybe more on the non-state actor side, on the activist side, by uh, going uh, to the historical archives at the University of uh, Witwatersrand in, in Johannesburg and going through their papers and found a lot of interesting material. Um, and also I, I checked out the archives at the um, University of Cape Town and briefly at Fort Hare, although there were issues of access there, so I wasn't able to include much uh, material from, from Fort Hare as well. Uh, but I actually did that process after I'd kind of mined the U.S. archives and had spent a lot of time at the Library of Congress and the Schomburg Center in uh, New York, um, and also the Mullen on and other other archives um, around the United States. So I was really trying to trace some of the links that I'd, uh, and some of the encounters and engagements that I'd found from the U.S. archives in South Africa. So that's how I was doing it. I, I sometimes think if I'd gone to the South African archives first and then tried to trace those connections in the United States afterwards, um, I would have ended up with a slightly different book, which is maybe interesting in thinking about um, the archives that we go to try and tell these stories. But that's essentially what I did. And um, I tried to make it multi-archival and I tried to to bring in um, voices from the South African side, both both, uh, government officials, but also uh, activists as well.
1: So let's start with chapter one, which deals with sort of the Cold War and how this how this pushes the United States and South Africa together. What are you
2: looking at here? Yeah, um, chapter one and chapter two, to a certain extent, really, I think tried, I tried to set the scene for the book. Um, I, I go over some of the existing research on, on race and decolonization and the Cold War, um, really to try and provide a context uh, to the foreign policy ties that existed between the US government and the National Party, um, whilst also trying to trace at the same time and trying to integrate this into the story, um, how transnational black networks uh, intersected with and attempted to challenge what what I think was this and what other historians have shown to be this mutually beneficial political, military and economic relationship between the United States and and the National Party um, in this era of the late 1940s and 1950s after um, the apartheid state is uh, formed in 1948. Um, and I really wanted to set out the the relationship between the US and apartheid in this era um, whilst also intersecting that to how whilst also combining that, sorry with how African Americans and Black South Africans were commenting on that were critiquing that, were trying to engage with this uh, reality and trying to rethink uh, America's role in the world and what America represented uh, in the world as well.
1: And then your second chapter, which I, I really enjoyed because I, I honestly think uh South African diplomacy in the United States is just fascinating to try to, to to unpack. There's this really interesting sort of ideological baggage that comes along with it. What's South Africa trying to do?
2: Yeah, um, so this was this is the stuff I was alluding to before, the material that was mainly gained from the um National Archives in Pretoria. And what I found that was, a, was an almost a double-pronged technique from South African policymakers and diplomats run through the Consul General in New York and then later in the embassy in Washington, D.C. And there's a real clear strategy, I think, of <clears throat> first trying to appeal to sympathetic audiences and sympathetic politicians in uh, the United States who are, who are going to be naturally inclined to a white settler state in Southern Africa, who are... Um, and that's often, again, bound up with the language of anti-communism, that idea of outside subversion um, and how that's really embedded in terms of white supremacist thinking. So they're trying to make these appeals, popular appeals, strategic appeals to um, U.S. officials and to the U.S. public who might be sympathetic to um the apartheid state so you have diplomats saying oh you think you've got problems in america dealing with um the race problem in america but we have a real problem because we're in the minority here you should be sympathetic towards us um sorry i'm losing my voice slightly i've got a a bit of a cold um but the second strand of that as well is that really when um the pressure from activists is really mounting um and, and people are, are exposing the ties between the United States and the South African government. And, it, and as you know, people like Mary Dudziak and others have shown that um, the Cold War, whilst it didn't, it wasn't a good thing for the Black Freedom Struggle. It, it may have <clears throat> accelerated certain civil rights gains as well. When essentially, you know, racism in America becomes the Achilles' heel uh, for a lot of American politicians, and at least in a kind of public diplomacy sense, um, and. America is maybe thinking about being a little bit more critical and standoffish with the apartheid state. Um, the South African uh, uh, South African diplomats and South African policymakers try kind of change tack, and um, they're a little bit more hostile towards um, the United States. They're a little bit more critical of America. They claim their national sovereignty in a similar way that actually white segregationists claim their state's rights um, after Brown versus Board of Education. And they um, say, look, you you have no right intervening in uh, South African racial politics when you can't get your own house in order as well. So chapter two really tries to trace that, um, how South African policymakers responded to rape the racial politics of the United States, um, tried to influence and make friends and to uh, appeal to certain factions within the United States that they thought would be sym- sympathetic to the apartheid project, but then also how they tried to defend themselves from growing calls to uh, um, calls for, for human rights and calls uh, that are critical of the apartheid government. Um so yeah i was i was kind of quite intrigued by the level of attention and the level of um of the the effort that went into really trying to influence american public opinion towards towards south africa
1: and so, something that I've noticed a little bit with my own research are these attempts to try to make inroads in the United States with sympathetic groups. And at the same time, the same period that you're focusing on, you have the rise of so you know citizens councils in the South, for example. Was there any sort of attempt at at kind of a public private diplomacy trying to reach out to these more these segregationist camps in the united states or are they mostly is the south african government still sort of looking at like a top down just trying to work with the, the federal government
2: yeah, from the material that I saw, I saw it as um, mostly top-down, trying to influence um, the federal government, trying to also influence uh, businesses as well. But with the U.S., um, through sorry, through the South African uh, information. Um, agency as well, they are trying to, you know, promote South Africa as a place that um, is a bit of a haven for, for potentially for white Americans so in terms of business investments, but also in terms of tourism and, and holiday making and that kind of thing as well. So, and you can see actually, there's a real close monitoring of newspapers in, in um, the United States by South African officials, and they try and encourage people, and actually I think also write in themselves, uh, to try and defend South Africa when it's getting a tough time in, in the liberal uh, American press. Um, now, I didn't go through um, records of, of kind of white newspapers in the South, that might have uh, maybe shed some more light on that, but I think my, from the records that I looked at, it was mainly trying to influence the federal government, but I do think there was an effort to try and influence public opinion as well. And um, I don't want to, you know, kind of go off on too much of a tangent as well, but there's so much really good research that's being done on um, white segregationist connections uh, with white settlerism in Southern Africa. So, you know, work by Zoe Hyman, uh, Stephanie Rolfe and others. Um where they're, where they're showing that segregationist groups such as Southern Citizens' Councils and the John Birch Society were inspired g- by engaged with white settler regimes starting in the 50s, particularly into the 60s. Um, so I, I don't have the answer of saying, you know, these efforts, these diplomatic efforts directly influence that. Um, I, I can't prove those connections, but I think, you know, that may well have been a byproduct of that um, effort to, to try and reach out, uh, not just to the federal government, but to... Um, the, uh, the American people, particularly white segregationists uh, and people who may be sympathetic to the uh, white South African cause in that sense as well.
1: Fascinating. It's, it's an area that I, 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 I've, I love to pick apart and just dig deeply into, but let's, let's get back to your book. Um, your third chapter, Crossing the Black Atlantic, that's about travel specifically. So, Uh, who's traveling and what's the effect of this travel?
2: Yeah, um, so it's a a fairly kind of narrow case study, um, which I think you can draw some broader conclusions from. But I I focus specifically on uh, the travels of, uh, four individuals, um, so Canada Lee and Sydney Poitier, uh, two, um, obviously famous uh, actors uh, based in uh, based in the United States, uh, and they travelled to South Africa in 1950 to shoot the film version of Alan Payton's book *Cry the Beloved Country*. And that's actually a London Films production. Uh, Alexander Corda's brothers, uh, Zoltan Cordo, is the director, um, and, and they find themselves and they end up in South Africa in 1950. Canada Lee is a particularly radical figure who was associated uh, with the black left, um, in, in the thirties and forties. Um, at this point he, um, is struggling for work. He's kind of been blacklisted. Um, he's suffering from health problems and he sees this film as an opportunity for him to resurrect his career a little bit as well. So, you know, making a film from a London production company in South Africa. Um, so I, I, I basically try and look at him because he's someone who you'd expect to be really overtly critical of the apartheid state, but he has to be silent in a lot of ways, despite um, experiencing race uh, racism firsthand in South Africa, despite sneaking out from his where he's meant to be staying and meeting with local activists and attending boxing matches and things like that. Um, so he does get a feel for the country and, and the ferment that is developing in South Africa, but ultimately he has to kind of be diplomatic about it when he's shooting the film because the apartheid state has given explicit permission for the film. They want to use it as a way of trying to show South Africa in a positive light. Um, for example, they they freak out when Paul Robeson is rumoured to be attached to the film. They withdraw, you know, all discussions when that happens, for example. Um, so Candelee kind of has to keep his mouth shut, but does eventually end up come out uh, come out to be critical of apartheid during the Defiance campaign in 1952. Um, so he travels with Sidney Poitier, who's a really young um, actor at this point, early on in his career. and He's a lot more vocal and a lot more militant uh, in a way, which I think he kind of temporarily... Um, feels the repercussions mm. of in terms of his work after that as well. So I use the, those uh, two actors travels to um, South Africa to try and look not only at how African-Americans, although, you know, obviously Sydney Poitier is born in the Caribbean, but how people based in the United States who are part of black American community are engaging with the issue of apartheid, how they're making connections, but also how they have to make compromises when they travel, um, how, Travel and borders are regulated in such a way in between the United States and South Africa that only, you know, certain people are able to to cross. And if, if they are able to travel, there's certain conditions attached to that that mean that, you know, you can't do a Paul Robeson and say that, you know, uh, overtly straight away that the United States government is comparable directly to the apartheid state mm-hmm. um sorry the, the other kind of uh, figures that i look at i, I try and again try to tell two sides of the story are the anc activists say, said k and Frida matthews a husband and wife who traveled to the united states precisely at the time uh when the defiance campaign this mass civil disobedience campaign gets underway in 1952 uh, and Z. K Matthews is in the United States to take up a position at the Union Theological Seminary in New York, and essentially became become the publicists and um, the uh, a really important connection between African American activists and. Uh, the ANC and the Congress Alliance back in South Africa at this time of mass ferment with the defiance campaign. They're telling, they're correcting mis- misconceptions of South Africa. They're talking about why the uh, why the um, defiance campaign is necessary. They're talking about apartheid laws. They're doing speaking tours. They're traveling around. Um, but also they, they suffer the consequences of being so outspoken and they're, they're trying to... The South African government tries to trick them into overstaying their visa, so they can arrest them when they go home. Um, they 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 suffer the consequences when they get back. They're monitored closely, and and or uh, their uh, possessions are searched, and all of this kind of stuff as well. So, they're, they're the they're the travels that I really focus on. And then in the end of that chapter, I, I look at the Paul Robeson passport case to really try and um, look at the limitations that were placed on travel, but then also how people in South Africa responded to Robeson's, uh, Robeson's denial of a passport between 1950 and 1958 in order to try and draw rhetorical connections between how state oppression works in the United States and how state oppression works in South Africa. Fascinating. Um, in this next
1: chapter, this was something that I didn't anticipate, and I feel like I know a little bit about this subject matter, but you, you focus particularly on sort of, consumer culture in between black South Africans and black African-American and sort of interchange. Tell us a little bit more about that.
2: Yeah. Um, so I, this is one of the things I grappled with a little bit with the structure of the book because I, I found this material um, um, and I was thinking a lot about consumer culture. Because how do you fit that into like a narrative, which up until this point in the book is, you know, fairly US foreign policy, South African foreign policy focus and, and activist networks but I, I did want to bring in these um, consumer culture connections because I think they're really important in terms of showing how African Americans and black South Africans relate to one another and also obviously this is a time when American investment uh, and businesses are, are are investing in South Africa and I, I wanted to see how people of colour were kind of caught up in that in a way or maybe if, if they were used in any particular way um, or what connections that came out, uh, potentially would come out of that. And I do that um, by examining mainly in that chapter, chapter four, uh, what I think is possibly the best title of a magazine ever, a Zonk magazine, a Zonk with an exclamation mark, um, which was first published in 1949 uh, and, and had a print run throughout the 1950s. Um, and when I was going through, I was, I was in the univ- that, that publication is available in lots of different archives, but I was reading it um, for some reason in the uh, University of Cape Town um sorry in the in the national library of cape town uh, and i was just going through it just at the end of the day and i was like this magazine is packed with uh stories about black american celebrities po- politicians sports stars so figures such as joe lewis lena horn willie mays marian anderson arthea gibson <clears throat> all feature really prominently, um, and they're it, it's a it's a glossy picture magazine as well. Uh, so they're they're cast in this very kind of engaging way. In a way, it's similar to Ebony magazine in, in the US and Georgette magazine. magazine. Um, and I tried to assess in that chapter what these reports on these individuals and these glossy images meant in terms of how Black America was consumed and configured in the early years of apartheid. And I was particularly interested in how. What that meant, if you were a black South African looking at these images of a modern, urban, uh, black American landscape, would how would that make you think about your own situation? How might you respond to that? And, I, and ultimately, I think that black South Africans are being sell, sold, um, you know, a, a particular vision of economic advancement, which the apartheid government is is trying to kind of experiment with at that time. So the, the apartheid government is building um, a series of, of townships. They're trying to uh, promote uh, the traditional family, Western traditional family unit, um, individual economic advancement and things like that for, for black South Africans, in, in obviously in a very problematic way. So in one way, there's this vision of, of black America that's modern, that's urban, that's successful, kind of fits into that. But I, I kind of refuse to believe that people who are reading this publication would have bought into that that iconography and that mythology, really. And actually, I think it, it's a really interesting text because um, I think that the gap between these mythologized black American figures and the reality of life in apartheid South Africa is really obviously going to be stark so i wonder whether this is you know uh, and i speculate about whether this promotes further critiques of apartheid and, and and by using you know these figures in america by being influenced and inspired by these prominent figures in america as well and i'm aware obviously that you know there's a very romanticized version of black america that's appearing in these magazines too so um yeah it's a bit of a kind of cultural turn in, in the book and, and i try and use Song Magazine and, and print culture a little bit more broadly to try and look at these cultural connections that existed between um, African-Americans and black South Africans, which I think are really important in terms of understanding the context of these engagements in the, in the 50s. So then your next chapter,
1: it, this is tackling anti-communism head-on, black internationalism, anti-communism, and the prison. And, and, and both these groups, African-Americans, black South Africans, they're confronting varying but nevertheless
2: high levels of anti-communism in their home societies so what are what are their responses looking like yeah um i I guess i focus more on the african-american left here and and um yeah, oppression more generally and, and efforts to marginalize anti apartheid activists in south africa um so when i was reading through a lot of newspaper articles uh, pamphlets uh di- personal diaries uh, letters that were sent uh, between activists and also um uh, between the us and south africa as well i was really um struck about the the similarities in where in which um political prisoners particularly black leftists who were threatened with prison under, um, you know, charges of being suspected communist subversion and political prisoners in South Africa, how they talked about those um, experiences in similar ways and how they drew connections between how they were being similarly imp- oppressed um, by the state. Um, so I thought that was a kind of really interesting shared language uh, and, a, and a really interesting way of trying to make black international connections out of quite oppressive circumstances as well around the iconography of the prison. Um, I was also particularly struck again at that time, again it's this idea of, of how black internationalism intersects with state power, um, of how South African anti-communism that was used to stifle the anti-apartheid movement was explicitly modelled on um, anti-communism in the United States. So, for example, the treason trial prosecutions that went from 1956 to 61 um, were... And, and they were incredibly effective in terms of dismantling the Congress Alliance leadership and creating headaches in terms of the civil disobedience campaigns of the 50s in South Africa, um, how essentially that, that was uh, modelled on the prosecution of uh, of suspected communists under the Smith Act uh, in the late 1940s and 1950s, um, but also how the South African government sought uh, legal advice from American law firms on how to carry out these kinds of prosecutions. Um, they hired a PR company, for example, to uh, which they thought would help stress their anti-communist credentials to the world. And then also um, tried to seek out individual state witnesses, for example, former American communists turned state witnesses. Um, for their advice on how best to prosecute um, people that they're accusing of, you know, of treason, of trying to overthrow the nation. So um, I think in, in chapters five and six, I try and show the similar methods of repression that are being used and how apartheid officials are learning from anti-communism in terms of silencing and, and repressing radical black voices um, and also how political prisoners in both countries knew this and how they were exposing um, the similarities in terms of how they were being oppressed in order to make these and and, and continue to insist that actually, you know, life under apartheid was very similar to uh, life um, in Jim Crow America, for example.
1: Is that an effective organizational tool? You know, this is something I, I grapple with a lot in being able to find those sort of commonalities of oppression, right? You know, we're facing the same sort of pressure on the left. We're facing the same sort of racist pressure. Are, are they going to that well and using that to forge connections?
2: Yeah, I, I think they are. And I think you can see that in how they, they talk about their, their, their shared experiences, uh, I think if you if well there's lots of things that that I think people could be critical of the of the book, but maybe one of the things is is maybe I'm being a little bit too optimistic here, maybe that I'm trying to you know make the uh stress the agency of these activists in what were pretty kind of dire and hopeless situations as well but the reason why i w- I would slightly disagree with that is that um whilst I admit that there's uh, um that, that is an optimistic book in a sense that I'm you know repeating this line that you know you can continue to make these uh, connections whilst you're also being increasingly marginalized is that I, I think it, it really kind of adds to this groundswell of, of opinion that um, forces the state in lots of ways to modify its behavior and it's quite hard to pin down exact examples of that but it essentially what I'm trying to say is that when people, uh, political prisoners in both countries are, are trying to say that um, that we're suffering similar sorts of oppression, that creates a big headache for, for policymakers in the United States, for example, that uh, forces um, South African officials to maybe be more hostile to America because they're not wanting to be lumped into the same boat as... as um, as apartheid South Africa. So I do think it has an impact. It's quite hard to trace. Um, and I do think it maybe offers a potential lesson for for activists more generally, um, one that's, again, optimistic, hopefully not blindly optimistic, but um, that these kind of ideas can maintain and sustain themselves. if, if um, And that actually... Um, you can, when things look particularly bad, um, you can continue to make connections, and um, it's a long, it's one part of a of a longer struggle as well.
1: Well, I, I find um, I, I turn up people in the civil rights movement in the United States who who looked at what was going on with the era of decolonization and were actually inspired by it in a lot of ways. I'm thinking of um, this guy Bill Sutherland, who explicitly just said. I felt like there was so much more possibility For Africa in the early 50s Than there was in the United States I thought McCarthyism had shut everything down And that the, the future was just going to be in Africa And that was where I wanted to spend the rest of my life So I, I think people find Ways um, To sort of Draw strength Even in, like, even in other movements facing oppression uh, Sutherland is unique Because I think he sort of thought anthropologically In that way Nevertheless I, I do think it's out there but I don't want to get off on my research. This is about your research. <laughs> that
2: sounds fascinating. Yeah.
1: Um, so this next chapter, Political Prisoners, you get to bring some
2: gender into this one. Tell us what's going on there. Yeah. Um, so one of the things actually when I started the book was that I, I was really I wanted to make some sort of contribution to thinking about the gendered language of, of black internationalism and how important gender was to the anti-apartheid movement, the global anti-apartheid movement. Um, and I think really from chapter chapter six, seven, and eight, Really foregrounds that. Um, and, and chapter six an essentially documents um, how African Americans and Black South Africans responded to um, acts of state repression, to their political imprisonment, at, in a way that established the prisoners a, a key site of Black international protest. Um, but one which I think constructed a, a vision of what I call in the book uh, heroic Black masculinity. Um, which was useful in terms of rhetorically challenging state power and promoting the agency of these political uh, prisoners at a time when actually, you know, their opportunities are being incredibly... narrowed down um but obviously raises some problems in terms of downplaying the agency of black women um so if you read like prison accounts of uh, activists in south africa or how um black leftists like alfayas hunting um benjamin davis and others talk about their incarceration or how the campaigns to gain their freedom talked about their incarceration and their imprisonment, um, it casts them as, as part of, of heroic black male leaders that are part of a long line of heroic black men. And that's certainly true and there's nothing, you know, I can understand that as a rhetorical strategy so I'm not being overtly critical of that, but I think the parallels in terms of how the experience of going to prison prepared black men for leadership um, in both countries helped create this kind of masculinist vision of, of Black internationalism, at least in this case, when you're looking at how the Black left engaged with political prisoners in South Africa. So I think it, hopefully in some way it makes some sort of contribution in terms of building a work of Michelle Stevens and others to talk about masculinity and Black internationalism and, and whether that limited... Um, the agency and the leadership opportunities of, of black women, at least in a rhetorical sense.
1: And where, where are black women found in those spaces? How are they depicted when talking about prison, for example?
2: Yeah, um, so a lot of the time they're, they're either absent, uh, which particularly in South Africa is problematic because South African women are, are repeatedly you know, going to jail for violating um, apartheid laws, particularly in the 50s and various campaigns. Um, but when they are talked about, they're talked about often... And not all the time, but often I thought this was striking in terms of um, a a sense of vulnerability, a need of um, if men aren't allowed to lead in the way that um, they would like to, um, if the apartheid state continues to um, oppress uh, black South Africans uh, and other non-white groups in South Africa, then women are going to be left vulnerable and that they need this kind of male leadership. So they're actually, it was, um, a lot of cases were very difficult to read because they're cases that tell stories of extreme violence that are being perpetuated towards women. And I put one or two examples in the book as well, um, which, I, which I interpret as being a bit of a rallying call, um, a call for a, a kind of gendered rescue paradigm in a way um, for an international audience potentially to um, engage with with the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa, and and obviously again, I can understand that as a strategy, but it's problematic again in that it, um, the extent of women's activism I think is marginalised, and you have these quite uh, horrific stories that um, really uh, cast women a, 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 as victims, and and that's you know certainly true. It doesn't the brutality of apartheid is very real, um, but it's striking how. There were very few instances that I read, um, at least from this time period that I'm looking at, which gave the same amount of attention to the physical abuses, the danger that that black male leaders were in. So I thought that was kind of striking in terms of how the anti-apartheid movement was being reported in South Africa and in the United States.
1: And then your next chapter just seamlessly segues right into motherhood i mean it, it literally is titled motherhood anti-apartheid and
2: pan-african politics mm. yeah um so i and so i didn't want to uh end particularly on a, a sense that like oh black male leadership was privileged within um, the, the US and South African anti-apartheid movements um, and I did want to show like, the contributions that women made themselves um, how black women across both sides of the Atlantic uh, engaged in one another's struggles uh, and also again the limitations that they faced because of quite close state monitoring uh, and harassment so um, in that final, in really in chapters 7 and 8 I tried to look at the gendered language of the anti-apartheid struggle um, how women again looking at magazines and, and newspapers? How um, the role of women within the home, uh, the role of the Black South African family, uh, was always being kind of talked about in terms of how uh, people were understanding their political circumstances in South Africa. Uh, and then, in the uh, without wanting to jump ahead a little uh, too too much, but in in chapter eight, I try and look at how um, the gendered language of Pan-Africanism influenced uh, groups like the National Council of Negro Women in the United States and the Federation of South African Women, and how they had quite shared um, views on the role of women in politics, Um, but also how these women involved in these organizations I think in ways questioned masculinist articulations of political leadership uh, within the international anti-apartheid movement. in ways which I think often, sometimes coalesced around a sense of, of global black motherhood. So, by that I mean a, a shared a shared sense of um, the responsibilities of black women and particularly black mothers in terms of uplifting families and communities. So, obviously, in one sense, that's a, a, a you know operating within a fairly patriarchal sense of, of gender roles. But my argument is that. Um, and uh, of course, like a range of black feminist scholars, a range of uh, other historians have, have made similar points, in both the US and South African context, but also how motherhood could be harnessed as a, as a global language that, um, again, maybe sometimes uh, act as a gender rescue paradigm, which uh, encouraged uh, African American women, such as women involved in the National Council of Negro Women, um, to take on the responsibility for the suffering of black South African children or um, issues that the black South African family are facing at the time. And that was shown in their charitable uh, work and fundraising and um, statements on, on apartheid uh, during the 1950s, I think. So
1: that gives us a segue right into this next chapter, which was, I really enjoyed because I've honestly, i never looked at the national council of Negro women. So I, it's South African connections were totally unknown to me. Um, What was the group and what was it doing concretely sort of in South Africa?
2: Yeah, so I I look at really its first, that group's first foray into South African politics, which is uh, through an organization set up in Johannesburg through Father Trevor Huddleston, who's a um, fairly radical um, Anglican churchman um, who's ultimately deported from South Africa in the 50s who sets up this African children's feeding scheme because one of the key things that the apartheid state does under its policy of Bantu education is to try and limit um, uh, black South African access to education, to to technical education, um, and also to strip away any resources to schools that um, take black South African and and Indian and coloured children as well. Um, So education is a really, really important uh, issue in South Africa. um, And... There's a really kind of key mode in which the apartheid state tries to limit opportunities um, for Black South African and other groups as well. And the African Children Feeding Scheme is a response to that. So there was reports of of lots of uh, African children fainting in schools because they weren't being fed either at home or at school. Um, so the idea is that they would give one meal a day to children in Johannesburg, I think it was across 12 different schools, um, that would enable them to concentrate on their studies and, and work and that kind of thing. So that's the initiative that the National Council of Negro Women based in Washington, the organisation of Mary McLeod Bethune, she, she dies in the mid-1950s and it's taken over. Um, the era that I look at, it, the, the leader of the NCNW is someone called Vivian Carter-Mason, who's someone I don't think has had enough attention uh, in terms of her... Um, Work with the NCNW, but also her international vision. Um, and they they start uh, fundraising, holding white elephant sales. Uh, they invite they the I think it's the uh, Harlem branch of the NCNW host Trevor Huddleston, and they make it the cause of their junior councils to try and um, to try and you know get involved in this campaign and to feed South African children. And I think on, on one level, if you look at that, it's it's, it's Part of maybe a narrative of UNICEF or CARE or something like that, which people like Laura Briggs have talked about as being an extension of US imperialism um, and, and a kind of problem creating problematic narratives of you know helpless nations uh, in Africa, for example, um, and the state and. The NCNW does work with the State Department to to get the okay for this fundraising initiative as well. But I think on another level, if you look at it, you can see it as an extension of the NCNW's work in the United States, its work with communities in the American South. Um, And I think it's, you know, a fairly kind of radical thing to be doing, to be openly condemning apartheid and also trying to, in albeit a very limited way, um, help Black South African families and um, help Black South African children. So, I try and like trace that connection, and uh, as something which I think is really interesting in terms of the NCNW's international work, which which does expand into the '60s, '70s, and beyond. And there's a really a really great PhD dissertation by someone called Brandy Wells, which is exploring that that um, that history as well, which I encourage people to to check out.
1: I'll have to put that on my list. Um, out of curiosity, um, you know, one of the observations I see frequently about the later parts of the anti apartheid movement in the U.S. is that um, it was a way to have conversations about what was going on in the U.S. without actually directly having that conversation racism, police brutality, housing justice. Um, so, in undertaking this charitable work, um, was this a way for African American women to also talk, sort of, about what's going on in the U.S.?
2: Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I think absolutely. And I think, um, hopefully the the book, uh, in ways adds to discussions of how, you know, diaspora communities are constructed and maintained and how local and regional circumstances are, are, are absolutely part of that. So obviously the lives of black women in the U S and South Africa differed in, in really important ways. Um, but I think they nevertheless made politically strategic decisions to see their experiences, um, their oppression and, and their resistance as well as being connected. Um, so I guess I don't want to go back. To, I don't, you know, this is stuff that, that people know, but I can't help but mention it. Um, it's that myself, along with, with many others, have been obviously influenced by Stuart Hall's concept of articulation and identity within the diaspora, um, the ways in which people think through difference and disconnect, Uh, discontinuities as they connect their struggles um and the idea is in that kind of uh fantastic article that um must have been published maybe 20 years ago now by robin kelly and tiffany patterson unfinished migrations um where they say that the linkages that tie the diaspora must be articulated and, and aren't inevitable um and i think to go back to the question I think the NCNW's choice to engage with the African Children Feeding Scheme in Johannesburg is is real evidence of that. I think you know they, they are. It's clear that a lot of NCNW members' lives will differ from. The black south african families and the women that they're trying to help in south africa but i think they make these strategic decisions to connect one another's struggles because they can see in their own history in their own lives in their own present moment that you know feeding black families taking care of uh black children education schooling are these huge issues that african americans are grappling with at this time as well right so so i absolutely think you know that um these strategic articulations are being made uh the similarity the sameness within difference and and this is i think the ntmw's work with the african children's feeding scheme is is definitely part of that
1: so in ending the book you you end just short of sharpville sharpville massacre this watershed moment in the anti-apartheid movement why did you choose to end the book just shy of that
2: yeah um So the uh, the framing of the book is 1945 to 1960. And and I think I initially made that decision as I feel these years as, you know, a load of scholars I've already mentioned, people like Von Eschen, Carol Anson, Gerald Horne, Singh, recently John Monroe and and others. um, This period really represented a key moment in the history of empire, imperialism, anti-colonialism, the civil rights movement um, as well, not to mention the founding and the development of the apartheid state. Right. So I think it's an absolutely crucial moment that, that, looks, that brings together all of those issues. Um, so the markers of the book, 45 to 60, take us, as I initially conceived it, from the Pan-African Congress uh, in Manchester, um, where Africans really assert their leadership over the Pan-African Congress movement. Um, to, and there's obviously that symbolic... Uh, African-American, well, more than symbolic, that really important African-American present there is Du Bois there as as chair, as observer um, at that gathering, to 1960, which is, you know, commonly known as the Year of Africa, by which time 23 I think it's 23 independent African nations have their independence. Um, so again, I just think this is such an important period in which race and empire are being debated, that old ideologies are being contested and new forms of imperialism under the guise of the Cold War and anti-communism are, are taking shape. So having said this, um, th- that was my initial framing. And that kind of comes out of my MA dissertation where when I was looking at the Pan-African Congress in Manchester and I kind of... To put it very simply, wanted to see what happened next, and wanted to explore what happened next in terms of the context of the early Cold War. Um, but having having said that, I, my intention of ending in 1960 and having that in the book's title was was to try in some way evoke Sharpville, um, the Sharpville massacre that that obviously took place in March of that year. Um, this was you know such a key turning point in how the world perceived south africa uh and I should in this era of high apartheid that did change how the apartheid government interacted with the rest of the world um and also i think essentially i don't want to make the case that sharpville changed everything although i think historians often do do that um but Post-Sharpville, um, there are the emergence of new anti-apartheid organisations, efforts to establish boycotts and sanctions movements that other historians have looked at, that I think in some ways were still connected what was going on in the 50s, but were also distinct and, and different. Um, and finally, so but my reservation of of, of saying that, I'll, so on, on the one side, I'm saying Sharpville did represent a real change in how... Um, south africa was perceived by the rest of the world and how people mobilized and challenged apartheid and it was i think the 60s the late 50s and, and the 60s you know was the birth of of, of boycotts and, and sanctions and these kind of things but i think it's also important to note uh, just as a side point that you know while this didn't mean that south africa was completely shunned and you know this is something that i think was obviously central to, will be central to your your research. It obviously wasn't completely shunned by the Western world, and while some you know nations in the Caribbean and Asia uh, raised sanctions against South Africa, in contrast, you know the the flow of capital. But from the US into South Africa actually increased after the mm-hmm. Sharpeville massacre. And um, American companies are expanding their US finances, and the World Bank are arranging loans, and all in the aftermath of Sharpeville too. So, on one sense, um, I, I thought Sharpville um, did represent something different. So that's why I chose to stop in 1960. But I don't want to downplay the, the you know, the the continued involvement of the United States in apartheid South Africa in, in these ways either. But I think, yeah, it just came, it just seemed struck me as 1945 from the Pan-African Congress in Manchester to this kind of key year in uh, colonization of Africa was, was a, a neat time frame to explore these big issues about uh, race, empire, imperialism um, and, and how people are trying to rethink a, a new world and the oppressive forces that are preventing people from doing that and give birth to you neocolonialism know, colonialism and you neoliberal know, imperialism later on as well. Fascinating,
1: you know, and, and I, I, I agree on the, on the point on Sharpville. I mean, if anything, what's striking to me about it, in terms of at least American activists, because that's ultimately who I'm sort of most closely training my attention on, is the extent to which it undermines their faith in the U.S. government as a positive actor. Once it becomes clear that the U.S. government is not going to endorse sanctions and investment capital as you point out is just keep going up and up thereafter their attention really starts to turn to the u.s government because it doesn't
2: seem like there can be any other realignment yeah yeah absolutely um it's a yeah it, it i think it really exposes for a lot of people the, you know that the limitations of of working with the with the um u.s government and, and what america represents in the world and and that's something that um activists have been well, always grappling with, but I think a lot of the Afri- the activists that I look at in the fifties, the radicals have, have heard the leftists have, have latched on to, to, really early. Right. Um, but yeah, the sixties represents that, that, that change, um, from, uh, from other leaders too, I think.
1: So uh, my last question before I ask you what you're working on next, um, is, is sort of about the council on African affairs and then, and then black leftism more generally. You know, I'm I'm thinking of Alvin Tillery's book Between Homeland and Motherland, and he makes the case in there that the CAA, even before McCarthyism finally put a stake in its heart, was he he argues a pretty marginal organization in terms of actual membership and people it could attract, and and even if that is true, uh, you know, I'm I'm curious what what your thoughts are. What is this? period of black leftism that you're looking at say about sort of the long-term trajectory of black leftist internationalism?
2: Yeah, um that's a that's a great question. And that's I think still a question I'm I'm trying to I did a couple of book talks um fairly recently earlier on in the summer and, and that's something that became like a real key point of conversation. So it's still something I'm kind of grappling with. Um but to take take you, I'll take your kind of question about the CAA first. Um and Alvin Tillery's book, which is, which is a great book. Um, but having said that, I, I don't 100% agree with his criticism of the CAA as a, as a marginal group in that sense. Um, so, yeah, sure, it's a small group. It brings together and coalesces, you know, these um, black leftists, black radical figures, and it doesn't have this huge mainstream crossover appeal, um, but having said that, I think it's a vital organisation still in, in terms of maintaining anti-colonial politics amongst Black Americans throughout its existence, and may, maybe even beyond after it's closed down in 1955. So. To, to give a kind of, I was always struck, I think what, when I first went to the archives at the Schomburg Center, I was like, wow, this organisation, I'd read about this before, but I was when you read the reports um, of their Madison Square Garden rally in June 1946, it attracted a, I think a crowd of around about 19 or 20,000 people, so the group was able to mobilise a range of people at certain points, um, but also the key membership of the UC, um, sort of the Council on African Affairs, the Du Boises, uh, the Robesons, Alphaeus Hunton and people like that but um, what obviously key thinkers in terms of driving African-American anti-colonial thought, but there were also other members, particularly early on in the organization, uh, like E. Franklin Fraser, Mary McLeod Bethune was a member, Rayford Logan, and some of those people uh, kind of distanced themselves from the CIA after it was being investigated as a subversive organization. But I think their politics and their insistence on anti-colonialism and the connectedness of Africa to African-Americans was still maintained um, by by some of these these figures as well. Um, so, so I think there are these important connections, and, and I would slightly disagree with Tillery that the CIA was marginal. Although I do disagree with his analysis, I uh, do agree, sorry, with his analysis, and. Um, the analysis of Carol Anderson that actually it might be interesting to look at more liberal moderate groups and their black international and anti-colonial work like the NAACP, like groups like the NC, NCNW that I look mm-hmm. at um, and so in terms of like <laughs> what this means for the black international left, I, I don't want to give too much of a, um, a I, I don't want to give uh, too much of, again of, a, of an optimistic view as well but I think I um, think it reminds us that the black intern. It reminds us of the pressures that black internationalists, radical black internationalists, leftists in particular, who had an anti-capitalist, anti-colonial agenda, who made those connections between race, uh, white supremacy, and capitalism, who had the critique of racial capitalism. How dangerous those ideas were, and the the level that the state was willing to go to, to silence them. And, you know, of course, this is an argument that's long been made by historians by Gerald Horne in particular, Pelly Von Eschen again. Um, but I, whilst I agree with that analysis and I in no way want to downplay that that oppression, the realities of that oppression, the difficulties that those activists faced, um, the, the the immense psychological pressures that would have that that did place on on black leftists and the sacrifices that they made i think their ideas resonated and continued to subsequent generations um and i think actually even though organizations were often shut down personal connections um and uh links between friendships and things like that they they sometimes maintained um so to give a, a an example of that um I was reading John Munro's book uh, The Anti-Colonial Front a few months ago and he has in his final chapter a really kind of neat analysis of some of the people involved in uh, late 40s and 50s activism and how they might have influenced activism in the 1960s and I think that's a fairly convincing argument but you can also look at people like um, Claudia Jones who was involved in the black left right and then is deported and uh, Carol Boyce Davis and covers this history Um, but then how she's, you know, creating new networks and connections uh, in London as um, the editor of the West Indian Gazette and, and in other roles as well. So, again, I don't want to be I don't want to downplay those sacrifices of uh, and the realities of state oppression that the black left faced in this era and that McCarthyism and the Red Scare placed on on black activists. But I do think there's a sort of like maintaining their agency and their ideas surviving these periods, albeit in maybe sometimes limited forms. Um, and and to kind of restore that is something that I was quite interested in trying to do. I'm not sure if I do it in a way that's particularly convincing, um, but I think there was just so much material on both sides of the Atlantic, so many connections, even after, you know, 1955, that I thought that, you know, these connections are still ongoing. And and the the radicalism and the black international radicalism and global black power doesn't for me, appear in a a vacuum. Um, It comes from somewhere, and I think it comes from a lot of these early um, black leftist activists in the the 40s as well. No,
1: I think you're completely right on that one. I mean, if anything, I couldn't help but be struck by the extent to which how how these networks were so vibrant, given all the challenges that they faced on both sides. Um, You know, with everything that they were going through leftists were actually still still strikingly active in this period so i I think that tells you something about the future to come well we're just about at the end of our hour so i thought i would just ask what are you planning to
2: work on next yeah that's a that's a good question i've been trying to think about think about that quite a lot recently um so I, i have two two main projects in mind um one i'm really intrigued in the, end, the NAACP's work with in Africa in the 1970s. And this just came out of an archival trip uh, the summer before last, where I stumbled across um, a, a report uh, of the NAACP's, and it was called Task Force on Africa, um, that took place in the late 1970s. Um, when, really ways that are really quite ironic, uh, despite given their treatment of Du Bois and Du Bois being sidelined in the organisation and gravitating towards the Council on African Affairs, where they try and recover the black international pan-African history of the NAACP to try and say, we are the organisation that um, can help Africa in the late 70s and also as African Americans we have a responsibility to lobby the American government to to push for a more enlightened foreign policy towards Africa so I don't know whether that will become a monograph or whether that will be a few articles but I'm I'm really intrigued and in trying unpacking those connections and um, I presented on that at a conference uh, in, in April and a lot of the audience were like the CIA have got to be involved in this somewhere so I, I need to try and kind of work that out (laughs) a little bit um the the second idea that i've had which is a bit of a passion project and there's been so much like really cool scholarship that's come out on this recently um is to try and think about the connections between race and aviation and the diaspora in the jet age and that really came to me because i was reading a lot of african-american travel writing in africa when i was in the early stages researching for for winning our freedoms together and i was just struck by the amount of time that um that these African-American travellers devoted to the experience, writing about the experience of travelling on independent black-owned airlines with, Afri- with African pilots and things like that. And obviously there's a really kind of interesting connection between you know accessing modernity, technology and flight. Um, and there's been a recent book by Gerald Horn on this, which I haven't read yet, which I need to have a look at. And also um, there's a really great book called Empire of the Air, which I read uh, in the summer, um, which talks about how Actually we need to look at colonial um the expansion of airways in the in the nineteen in in the in the kind of mid 20th century as a colonial project as well so I'm, I'm interested in trying to unpick that but I don't know where where that's going to take me or how to limit that really so still very much thinking about race and empire and black internationalism but maybe in in slightly different ways and different periods fascinating
1: I'll look forward to seeing where that goes and I won't lie i uh, Anything on the end the ACP in the seventies, I think, is especially warranted. It, it's it's such a, a a blank spot on the map of black internationalism at the moment. I think that would go a long way to filling some important historiography.
2: Yeah, Hopefully, and, and the, the the people that who are involved, uh, you know, in this task force in Africa aren't household names, and I, I'm really struggling to track some of them down as well. So, um, it, there there really needs to be a lot more work on that. So, I'm, I'm going to. Hopefully next summer I might have some time in the States and I'm going to try and track some of that uh, stuff down. Fascinating. Good luck with that. Thank you so
1: much for taking the time to talk to us today.
2: Thank you so much for having me.